we are on. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Fitness in Philosophy podcast. My name is Robbie Gustin, and I'm joined, as always, by OPEX Fitness founder, James Fitzgerald. James, what's your favorite movie? Gosh. Um, well, hello, everyone. I'm James Fitzgerald, uh, OPEX founder, and I'm glad to be here. Um, that's almost as unfair as the question about uh, what's your favorite book, but I shall drop something there. Maybe the original Godfather. Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, and I think it's uh, <clears throat> not maybe not just that movie, but uh, the theme of that style of the movie are generally my favorites. Good fellas, that type of stuff. You betcha. All that, all that stuff. Heat. Um, Casino, um, yeah, Pesci, De Niro, acting crazy. Yeah, I like all that stuff. Yeah, Not a movie, but The Sopranos. Oh, man. Similar, similar style, somewhat. Yeah, but uh, I, gotta, I don't know if it's embarrassing to say I haven't watched any of Sopranos. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, none. Um, I think it was just the time that it came out on HBO, right? Yeah. Yeah, time it came out on HBO, just didn't, I don't know if I didn't have access or if it was just too much access for my reach currently technologically at the time. Um, I also think I was coaching so much I had no time for, for watching that. Makes sense. I had a, uh, a fellow grad student uh, who we were in grad school together in the same like year cohort in philosophy and we were at a pizza place one, one, one time and we were having a discussion about movies and he was trying to make the argument as as inevitably some philosopher does like try to buck the trend that the godfather was not a good movie and like i literally just like we had like an hour-long discussion uh it was it was, it was one of those like you just make a counter argument just for the sake of a counter argument yeah false objectively false so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw that out there yeah man come on um yeah there's probably a couple of people on this planet who would think that it's probably uh, not a good movie, but uh, so many, so many positives around that. How about yourself? You got one? Do you drop? Yep. Uh, I mean, others that probably trail behind in, in different genres, but the matrix by far, mm. hands down. Like I could yeah. easily do a episode breaking apart every single line in terms of the philosophy and stuff like that so that's that's probably mine that's a big part of what got me into philosophy so why don't we uh we should do that down the road then uh uh like as if it's not a book club it's a uh, ask our viewers and we'll do a side parallel fitness and philosophy culture podcast um and we'll ask viewers to watch a movie up until a certain point in time and then we'll get on the podcast and jam on it as to how fitness and philosophy fits inside of the fits inside of the movie. That'd be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe allow us a little bit of fun to, to rehash uh, dumb and dumber and go through uh, all the, <laughs> all the magical <laughs> genius that's inside of something like that, you know? Yep. Yeah. Just an existentialist tale right there. Just pure oh, artist. Yeah. You, you can get really deep in there. Yeah. Um, what, what number episode is this, Robbie? This, I believe, is episode 17. Mm. 17. Gosh, I don't immediately come to mind of a famous uh, athlete with number 17. Who would that be? I can't think of one. 
Jeez, well, that would be, that'd be a good fact for all of our listeners to post in the comments. A famous number 17. It's gotta yes. be like a court, it's gotta be a QB that had 17, right? Famous QB. Probably. But yeah, nothing's coming to mind right now. Gosh. All righty. And one more quick thing, guys, before we get started, uh, I got to remind myself to do this. If you guys like what we're doing, give us a thumbs up, like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, those things do help. You ready to talk about some skepticism? I'm skeptical. Skeptical? I like attitude. I'm bringing the skeptical attitude today to this skepticism chat. Excellent. Well, unlike dogmatism, where we said, mm, maybe not so much of a context where that's quite too good. Skepticism, I think there might be some, at least some good context for it. So yeah. just, a, just a refresher from uh, like the first dogmatism episode, I did a brief intro on like what are dogmatism and skepticism. So I thought it would be worthwhile to just very briefly go back through that. So broadly speaking, there are epistemological approaches or attitudes that one can adopt towards what we know um, or what we believe. And going back to that Aristotle's notion of virtue, where we say virtue is a mean between two extremes when the seesaw is balanced, so to speak, when it comes to belief, you um, assert without evidence or you assert too confidently and skepticism would be a vice of deficiency where even in the face of something you should properly believe you choose not to, um, or you're doubtful of anything that could come before you. Proper belief, you know, maybe in other languages, there's a single term that encompasses this, but in English, I don't know of a single word that would encompass, but let's say proper belief is the virtue in between those two vices, um, where you confidently assert or believe that which you have evidence for and that you are doubtful of that which you don't have evidence for. That would, that would be the mean between the two um, extremes. So, in this episode, we'll focus mainly on skepticism and we'll see where the discussion takes us, but maybe the next one as well. So one thing I found interesting this time around, I, I, I kind of noticed it a couple other times, but uh, in particular this time, just the differences in the dictionary definitions between like two different sources. So I, I put one from uh, WordNick up here and one from uh, Merriam-Webster. And of course, the two definitions are related, but definitely different perspectives depending on which uh, you you take. So one definition would be a doubting or questioning attitude or state of mind. Um, another would be the ancient school of Piro of Ellis. We'll talk about this. That stressed that, uh, that stressed the uncertainty of our beliefs in order to oppose dogmatism. So there, skepticism is more of a practical or empirical strategy to ward off dogmatism. As opposed to just an attitude or a state of mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a corrective. Yeah. Um, and then Merriam-Webster, an attitude or a doubt or disposition to incredulity, either in general or toward a particular object, uh, this method of suspended judgment, systemic doubt or criticism, uh, characteristic of skeptics. Um, so part of the reason I'm mentioning these two different definitions is one thing we'll get to when we get to discussing skepticism in more depth is that there's this interesting question, is it is it just withholding judgment? Is it just you know agnosticism, if you will, mm -hmm. with regard to two propositions? Mm -hmm. Or is it the act of doubting and disbelief? Mm -hmm. Or is one weak and one strong? So just 
you know, uh, I think you asked about this either during our first or second episode, the extent to which clarifying the meaning of something uh, makes a big difference to whether we can get on and sing it. That didn't make a difference, right? If, if, if skepticism really just means, well, holding judgment or being unsure one way or the other, that's one thing. And then if it means being actively doubtful that we can have any knowledge in regard to a particular area or in general, that's another thing too. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about someone taking on the role of being a skeptic versus being skeptical. That's also, right. you know, something that I think about in that is the action of being in that. Um, yeah. And I, cause I immediately, I immediately just thought about it for myself personally. Uh, I take on that uh, place with inside fitness a lot. Um, i.e. Uh, being skeptical around a certain thing because of experience has led me to doubt a certain, you know, uh, context of a topic because of the experience. So I got to that level of skepticism because of being able to see all the options in front of me. Um, and, but whereas I wouldn't call myself, a, you know, on the definition of a true skeptic in in fitness in all areas, you know? So, um, I don't know if it, uh, if I use that as like a part of my character as an, you know, as an absolute characteristic in all my endeavors, but there, you know, I, I definitely, um, am, you know, use skepticism inside of, inside of a lot of things that I do in fitness. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. And that, this is a big thing that comes up in the history of philosophy about like, you know, as soon as someone is skeptical of certain things, they, the immediate charge historically as well, you're a skeptic and you don't care about knowledge at all. And of yeah. course we need to distinguish between that because of course, uh, you know, exactly what you're saying, just because you are skeptical of certain methodologies doesn't mean that you are a, a skeptic in general or be a skeptic with regard to any fitness methodology being true or useful or anything like that. Yeah. So we need to distinguish between like, you know, the dark night joker, like, a torch to all knowledge, like chaos, like nothing is anything. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just all the window versus using skepticism as a healthy antidote to things that have maybe become too calcified or dogmatic. So. Yes. Yep. Yep. So in philosophy, there are a couple famous examples. Of skepticism, truth is this runs throughout almost any area of philosophy, but some famous ones that people might be familiar with. There's ontological skepticism, doubting the existence of the external world. Um, there's moral skepticism, doubting the existence either A, of morality, or B, of objective facts about morality. And then probably the most famous one, epistemological skepticism, uh, doubting our ability to know anything. And this probably most famously comes from Descartes and then you know I think therefore I am and am I just a brain in a vat and uh, how do I know the external world is there the matrix um, and epistemological skepticism and philosophical skepticism that deep deep question it's it's interesting and there's a lot to be said about it but the way we've been doing with other episodes where we want to kind of pull it back and keep it you know in the fitness and health realm it's different from ordinary skepticism about whether things like aliens exist so i don't mean to deny that that's you know it, it is an interesting question and there's lots to be said and written about it and discussed but for today we're going to primarily focus not on like can we know anything at all mm -hmm. is there even an external world but more like how can skepticism potentially be useful within the realm of health and fitness yeah yeah for sure yeah, because the, the couple, 
I forgot that you wrote that down. And as you're mentioning those three, I was, uh, <laughs> that's a lot in there if you wanted to get. <laughs> wow. <laughs> those are entire courses and books. And I bet. Yeah, I bet. I was not knowledgeable of that, but I could, I could well imagine that. So yeah, it gets, it gets pretty hairy pretty quickly, but I think that's also where like, we'll get to the discussion about the burden of proof. I think that's where that's also um, helpful as well. Okay. So you might ask what differentiates skepticism from other types of epistemological attitudes? Is it just having insufficient evidence? Is it being uncertain or does it consist in active doubting or of whatever comes before you? So just to have something to start with, we can say that withholding judgment is maybe let's just call it weak skepticism. This is what mm -hmm. philosophers do. They make up some silly name for mm -hmm. some position. And then active disbelief would be strong skepticism. So in the case of, this doesn't perfectly match, but in the theological or religious case, this would maybe be the difference between uh, agnosticism and atheism. Mm -hmm. some, something to that effect. Yep. People are looking for something to grab onto. Mm -hmm. Unlike dogmatism, which I think you and I both tended to agree that if it means the come what may, that it really just isn't useful in any context or man, it's really hard to find one. Yeah. Uh, skepticism can really be useful in a number of contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be justified slash reasonable or unjustified slash unreasonable depending on the context. So just some famous examples, uh, currently whether aliens exist, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting side note that just came out this week. I don't know if you saw, but there was a paper published talking about um, how basically in calculating the probabilities uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it's even more improbable that we came to be here on earth than previously suspected and how it's going to be even harder to find life like us um, elsewhere. So any, anyway, just kind of an interesting little current aside. Nice, nice, nice addition. We'll add those in the notes. Right. Uh, whether cold fusion will ever be possible, you know, people have been talking about this for years. Uh, currently, whether quantum mechanics and general relativity can ever be united or do we need to, you know, toss them out and build something new. Right now, there is either not enough evidence to decide or enough like tries and failures in either detecting aliens or trying to unite quantum mechanics and gravity or trying to get cold fusion going. That's like, okay, it's appropriate to be skeptical. Mm -hmm. That's an okay attitude. Doesn't yeah. mean that's the final word on it, but yeah. you're okay to be skeptical. Mm -hmm. um, unjustified slash unreasonable, you know, the moon landing didn't happen. The earth is flat. The earth is only 5,000 years old. Um, here, I think it's important to note the same way we said about dogmatism, that it can be a type of neurosis. I think a very similar thing can happen with skepticism where nothing that comes before you can count mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, and it, it kind of becomes a quasi dogmatism in that, in that regard. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, and you know, that, that really is, if we'll, we'll probably talk on a future episode about this notion, that's um, important in philosophy and, probably in fitness and biology as well of proper functioning. Mm -hmm. Like is the brain functioning the way it should? I think we can fairly say that the brain is not functioning the way it should when any evidence whatsoever comes before. And it's just the constant assertion of that proposition. So yep. um, I'll pause there and see if there are any thoughts. 
Yeah, would there be any, um, just because I'm reading a little bit about it uh, from Robert Trivers' work on uh, self-deception and unconscious into conscious thoughts, and is there anything that, uh, that uh, you know of, of a, by, uh, like an evolutionary uh, meaning for having a piece of skepticism, whether it's called something different, you know, inside of us for survival and reproductive means? It's a good question. I... I was just trying to think of, uh, you know, just the basic level of an organism, you know, seeing some form of a threat to the environment and, uh, you know, that the perception of what that thing is in front of them, you know, um, you know, is, is there, is there something, whatever that, whatever that perception is, does that, is, is skepticism a part of that, like inside of it, like questioning, wondering if it's, you know, how, how harmful is it? Is it real? You know, is that a is that a base support possibly for that uh, that language of skepticism to move inside that's embedded inside of us, like Robert Trivers is uh, is uh, trying to propose with uh, self deception? It could be. I mean, the two things that come to mind that are related. Um, one is I know there are you know evolutionary psychologists who talk about the use of dogmatism from an yeah. evolutionary perspective as you know group cohesion and uh, groupthink and stuff like that, and then it comes with drawbacks but then when you you know just in you mentioning that right now thinking on the group level you know the same way there's balances between introversion and extroversion and you know the types of attitudes the more conservative or liberal i can imagine from an evolutionary perspective you got to have some group of folks that are a bit more on the maybe dogmatic side and then some folks who you know have a bit more of a skeptical attitude who are willing to uh, either doubt something and move things forward or to approach something that people were previously af afraid to approach. So that's just extra on my part, but that, that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way you just said it there is probably, again, goes back to it being an antidote to dogmatism. It's just probably a natural occurrence that comes into place to make sure that uh, we don't get stuck in one way of thinking or a rut. But I just thought of it as a, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I just tried to tried to go back to see, how those things could have could have been built up for uh, um, you know inside of us that we just may not even be aware of the fact that it's embedded you know the ability to be skeptical but maybe it's just called something different because um, I was just thinking in terms of uh, <clears throat> you know I just read something as well the other day from uh, one of my former um, uh, mentors on movement Guy Voye and uh, one of the things he was he was always to say start every presentation with is uh, you know, question everything and question everything that I say, you know, and be careful of, you know, how you're hearing the information and know how you hear the information and keep asking questions like, why will some things that I say make you super interested? And why will some, is it possible that some things I will say will threaten you? You know, so um, I just, I just thought about that as like a, it's a, I guess, I guess probably the skepticism, maybe it's the skeptic in me, <laughs> but the skepticism does lend to some really positive, like, figuring things out. And I didn't know if there was some evolutionary means to that for survival. No, there might be. And just as you're saying that, like another thing that came to mind is, you know, again, this is complete conjecture on my part. I, I don't know, but you know, maybe skepticism or critical thinking as a tool to, I mean, a lot, a lot of what you hear in um, mindfulness circles and, you know, therapy and things like that is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that is, um, you know, questioning those ingrained embedded beliefs that are just so, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, deep inside who you are and that keep you doing the same repetitive thing. So may, maybe there is something to, um, you know, as we evolved and had these higher order thoughts, being able, maybe unlike animals, to question some of these things and then be able to move past them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To be aware of them first and then to, uh, to use your terminology for mindfulness is uh, the act of just allowing those things to arise, right? Just look at them and be like, oh, interesting, you know, <laughs> that that came right. up um, and no judgment around it. But yeah, so it is, so it is possible that it could be, could be there to act as kind of like this uh, underlying characteristic in all of us that uh, allows us to ensure we're going in the right direction. Yeah. And then, you know, may have evolved into good forms, you know, mindfulness kind of behavioral therapy. And then others were like, you won't take any evidence whatsoever. And even, you know, one could ask even a philosophy, like, is the question about the external world existing a type of neurosis? Is it that, you know, initial seed that's kind of grown, but then it, it got corrupted and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We went, yeah. we went way too far down that trail. So yeah. just interesting well, questions there. Yeah, just in that sentence alone, I would say yes, <laughs> it, it, it's neurotic, but it's only because I haven't dug deep into the six-month course or the university area of it or the books and books on it, right? Which I'm sure kind of color it to, to create a better understanding of that. Yeah. Yeah. The tough one there, speaking, you know, we had spoken of uncertainty last time with dogmatism and feeling uncomfortable. There are really, really smart people with really, really good arguments where like if you're in the philosophy classroom, it's like, wow, this is... Yeah, I don't know. Do I give up rationality to save this one? Or yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a tough one. But yeah, it is an it is a question within philosophy. You know, is is that a type of neurosis where it kind of goes down that rabbit hole? Yeah. No, I think uh, that's great that you're uh, unfolding those kind of questions that are inside of that high intellectually demanding area, um, because it uh, there's a reality in the questioning of the reality. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So like we were saying, skepticism can be a useful antidote to dogmatism and a healthy epistemological attitude, maybe to adopt as even a, a default. Um, you know, if dogmatism is something we generally agree should be avoided, then skepticism could be a helpful tool in that regard. But we have to remember, just like we always say in fitness, just like we always say in nutrition, it's just a tool, just the way a hammer is good for certain things and the screwdriver is good for certain things. It's not the be all end all. It's useful in certain cases. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I thought was worth bringing up, going back to Aristotle's metaphor, you know, people always associate Aristotle with, you know, the virtue is the mean between two extremes. He does famously say two other things that are worth bearing in mind. One is that, and this is just an important aside for everyone to recognize, some things don't admit of a mean, you know, murder doesn't admit of a mean, stealing, you know, th things mm -hmm. like that. But the second thing that's relevant to our discussion is that, given human nature, sometimes the mean is closer to one extreme than the other. Mm -hmm. So given, you know, take an example, um, hedonism and asceticism, the mean isn't smack dab in the middle. The mean is closer to asceticism given how much of a propensity we have towards pleasure seeking. Mm -hmm. And the relevance of that for what we're discussing now is going back to that seesaw with skepticism and dogmatism perhaps we could say something to the effect of look given our propensity for dogmatism and to give too much credence to something that we don't have sufficient evidence for perhaps the mean really does lie closer to skepticism than, mm -hmm. than dogmatism yeah yeah i would agree with that um yeah i would agree with that probably don't want to have a, a five minute video on me 
just thinking hard about that one, but initially I do agree with it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, unlike dogmatism, it, it, it can be a useful tool. It can, it, it can be a useful attitude. It can be a useful tool. Um, but again, like we were saying, just always remember that it's a tool and like, you know, mm -hmm. if we go too far down the rabbit hole, um, it can get problematic. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to discuss before we launch into the fitness side of things is skepticism versus proper belief and the notion of the burden of proof. So we, we mentioned this a bit last time with dogmatism, but just going back and thinking over it, it the past couple of weeks, I've, I've, I've been thinking about it obviously for even like a, a long time now, but like in particular after our discussion, <clears throat> I think this is an incredibly crucial point. I think especially today where we're so polarized, we don't know what to think. There's this very deep seated tendency to say, well, just because one side confidently asserts something and the other side confidently asserts something, both are being dogmatic. Mm -hmm. That is not true in many cases. There might be some cases where there isn't a clear burden of proof, but there are a lot of cases where there is. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd just go through a few and, and, and talk about that just so that we can see what we, what we mean here. So take, take the religious example. So, um, you know, those who withhold judgment on or deny the existence of God or gods, we could potentially say that's a reasonable or justified position unless the burden of proof is met. Those who believe that God or God exists, it's unreasonable, unjustified, unless the burden is met. So whether religious or non-religious, everyone has to admit that the notion that, you know, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, God, um, whatever else it is, it's an extraordinary claim. It's something that goes beyond experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm personally not making any, any claim here about whether that burden has been met or has not. It may very well have been met. Uh, and even Christian philosophers like uh, Kierkegaard famously said, if you think <laughs> the claim that Jesus was resurrected from the dead is like saying that, you know, gravity is an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared, like these are two fundamentally different things. One's a very extraordinary claim. So the idea here is, look, there's a burden on one side that has to be met. And until that burden has been met, the other side is perfectly justified and reasonable in believing what they believe and it is not on them to show otherwise. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, very well explained. And a great example. Um, you know, yeah, I'm gonna go there. <laughs> it's like right in front of our faces. It, I mean, it, 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 it's the perfect example, um, you know, currently in the political realm. Uh, Trump recently said the other day, well, um, Biden must prove that the election was not fraudulent. Meanwhile, the courts and all the other, you know, sort of entities that are investigating this are saying, no, the burden of proof in the legal system lies with those who would want to say that it is fraudulent. So again, if someone were to say both sides are being equally dogmatic, that would be very problematic. It's not that this burden can't be met. Could yeah. be, yeah. yeah. There could be something fraudulent, but, um, that burden is on one side. Yeah. Another great uh, example. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, by law, uh, there's no reason that uh, Joe Biden has to do that, right, as well, just by law. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No reason. Yeah. Yeah. Just to make sure that there's also, you know, something we don't know in terms of our uh, um, 
our knowledge, you know, of the, of the process. But yeah, that would just make sense even for no one who knows nothing about politics. You can't, you can't put that burden over on that person, you know, uh, to, to come up with a reasoning for that. You know, there's no reason even by law that they need to do it. So. Yeah. Right. And this, I mean, if you take even kind of more extreme examples, like, you know, someone says, prove to me aliens don't exist. It, it's very hard to prove a negative and the burden isn't on that person. That, that's, yeah. that's the thing. And we just, we get so ensnared in this pernicious idea that, well, I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe. And we're both being equally dogmatic. We just can't sell it. No, there's, there's a burden on one side and not yeah. on the other. Yeah. Um, very much the same thing in the legal situation course in, in America in particular and other countries it's different and then a fitness example that I thought would be useful that we we talked about last time um, you know basic strength work and basic aerobic work are both necessary and jointly sufficient for long-term health and longevity reasonable justified and less burden is met whereas high intensity mixed modal functional fitness is sufficient for health and longevity that could be true it is logically possible that that could be true but if we adopt, you know, an evolutionary framework, that claim is going to need to meet a pretty high burden to show that it is in fact true. And until unless that claim, that burden is met, we are entirely justified in not believing that. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is the high intensity has a higher burden, right? To yeah. That uh, it's sufficient. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and you could even reduce it, you know, they could come back and say, well, I, you know, the sufficient is too high burden. Let's just say necessary. Yeah. In addition to strength and aerobic, you need the high intensity stuff. Well, we could say burden still lies on you there. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Where does uh, time fit into that? Cause you know, the, the, the area that we always get into back to your point of uh, you were saying, you know, you believe, you believe, and I believe, but I believe, cause I see that happening a lot today. And the only real way that that uh, comes to an agreement between two people, let's say me being in one area, they being in the other, is the concept of time. You know, how, how time plays a role because the burden that they have, on, well, I shouldn't say that, the, the challenge that they have, let's just call it where their argument falls really flat, is the, is the, is the lacking evidence that would show that the practice of that over a long period of time is sufficient for health. But the short term, like I've said it publicly and it's well known, actually shows, you know, much higher markers of incidence of improvements in health, right? From starting here and getting here, if you want to get there the fastest, it's, it's intensity. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's like changing behaviors like overnight, it's whole 30. It's like all that stuff in one spot. So, that's maybe it's a question, you know, how do we, how do we kind of, not that we're trying to figure out the answer to that, but we're using skepticism inside of that as a base support. Um, how do we not get uh, Robbie all jammed up in that? Like, well, you believe what you believe and I believe, but I believe um, because that's essentially where it goes for trying to think of the coach out there, right? He's listening is like, actually I do believe and I've seen it in proof and all my clients I've worked with over the past year that the high intensity thing works. It's, you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, I have two thoughts there. So one, so two things to say with regard to time. Um, one that we'll probably delve a bit more into as well, but the burden can shift throughout history. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one. So evolution had a really high burden to meet. 
because on the face of it, it is an extraordinary claim. Yep. Uh, Einstein's general relativity, very strange claim that space and time are dynamic. But now that those burdens have been met, the burden is on the other other side. Yep. But to, you know, the other respect uh, with respect to time that I think you were asking about is more, correct me if I'm wrong, I think what you're asking is, look, are we even being fair to the high intensity functional fitness side if they're trying to say that this is sufficient for health and longevity and they just haven't had enough time to, to show it? Is that, is that basically kind of the idea? Yeah, well, actually, no, but, but yeah, I'll add that to it because it really right. is unfair if they don't have the competency or knowledge around the concept of time relative to the tools they're working with, you know? Because you see I'm saying, like, why be skeptical of my claim of the longer model if all they know and there's sufficient evidence of current stuff is like, no, this works, like, right now. Well, and that, but that's, okay, so, but that, that's exactly where I think you can, you know, when we talk about lobbying things over a net or like moving the chess pieces, I think that's exactly where you can push back is that just because it, it all depends on what the claim is. If they're saying high intensity mixed modal functional fitness is sufficient for longevity, well then yeah, we, we really do have to wait for the long-term studies. If they're saying it's for short-term improvement of health biomarkers, okay, then maybe we can say, yeah, there's, there's evidence there, but it depends on the for what, like when we say it works, what does it work for? For what? Yeah. What yeah. So, yeah. So I guess that's what I'm asking is how does it ever get to the point in language of, of us not just saying, well, you believe what I believe you believe you believe to get to a, to get to a consensus on what is right. Um, I mean, and it, I'd be interested to hear, you know, I think we discussed it a little bit last time, but it'd be interested to hear more thoughts from you here, but yeah, I mean, I, I personally think, you know, the evolutionary framework, it's a generator of hypotheses. It doesn't mean one specific thing definitively, but if we need to figure out why, you know, is lactose poorly digested and why can't people sleep eight hours from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m.? You know, I mean, all those things are united by that perspective. Well, if we take a similar perspective in fitness, generally speaking, there was, you know, long, slow distance, you know, breathing, uh, sustainable work and some resistance stuff and not too much of the super high intensity over and over and over stuff. Mm -hmm. So using just that framework in terms of health and longevity, we can say as a default, it seems reasonable to believe that those two things would be necessary for health. And if you want to say this other thing that's very unnatural is necessary for health, it could be the case, but let's get the studies. Yeah. And we are justified in believing that until we see otherwise. Yeah. Does that yeah. seem reasonable? Yeah. Well, for sure. But I'm just trying to take the other side of the coin and it's not strong enough, you know, because I'm currently day to day doing this. And, you know, what I'm proposing in terms of the concept, like I say, of, you know, hiking up a mountain when you're 95, right? And the way I describe that, um, my belief is that, you know, the, the, there's only one model that's going to create success in doing that, you know, and that is the resistance training and aerobic work for a long period of time. Um, but I don't, see, uh, I don't see your reasoning being strong enough based upon how I know coaches are seeing it today. I don't see that. Uh, I, I can't see the, them even understanding the burden they have on them to provide evidence. Cause they're like, there's a ton of evidence, right? Again, short-term evidence, but they seemingly can't. That's why I asked the question about time. They can't stretch out, you know, to even say, you know, well, what about when they're 95? You know I mean? They didn't even hear the sentence. They're like, what, why, what, you know? So um, I guess it goes back to semantics and the definition of what we're talking about. Right. So you said, 
health and longevity, right? Right. Um, so, and that, that creates clarity. Yeah, and I, I think a couple of things to say there are one, you know, this is where the work is to be done in conversation of like, okay, so, you know, Joe Trainer, you're saying, uh, Sally, your client has these improvements in A1C and the biomarkers, and you're showing this to me that, you know, 30 days later after doing this, um, you know, she's better. What specific claim are you making? Because if we engage on that level of, well, her A1C improved, well, that's, that's cool for the 30 days. Mm-hmm. That means she's going to live to a hundred. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. for each one of those claims, we can push back and be like, well, this is indicative of this interesting thing, but it doesn't necessarily stretch out. Let's, let's go further down the road. Yeah. Um, but I, I too, Robbie can't provide evidence. You know, I can't provide evidence for the, the long, slow game. It's, it's, it is theoretical, right? And it does make sense with an evolutionary framework and, and uh, common sense uh, around stress and adaptation in the current organism and how resilient they are, et cetera. But, you know, it's not, not really strong evidence. Well, so that's, that's, that's where I'd be interested to hear more thoughts. So I think the first two things you mentioned, the evolutionary framework and the common sense notion of adaptation are very strong evidence. But if what you mean by evidence is solely encompassed by double blind placebo controlled studies, then okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really where it gets, um, yeah, it's it just it's going to take a longer time, and it's it, it's hard to measure. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, I think it. <laughs> for my opinion, I said this multiple times. For I think the data is there. It's been done like a million times over. We just don't want to look at it. Yeah, and, you know, and that's that's exactly where it gets down to. Like, what do we mean by data? Yes. Do we mean this one isolated variable that was measured? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. versus yeah. like a holistic notion yeah. of of data. Exactly. Yeah, no, a holistic notion of data is like you know. We got more accessible foods. We're moving further and further out of poverty. More people are making mean incomes higher and higher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Access to all these things. We're fatter. We're more sick. We're dying. Age of longevity is for the first time in hundred years going downward. Like, you know, so that that's, that's strong data right there. So we could, we don't want to just say, throw the baby out the bathwater, right? Everything that we've attempted, you know, it's just got to go based upon that concept. But, you know, why not just propose bodybuilding and easy aerobic work and, uh, and broccoli and just like, you know, stop it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think going back to your question about like, you know, how do we know that we're not being dogmatic and, you know, the other side's not equally dogmatic. I think you and I would hopefully both agree, just like I was joking last time that if sufficient evidence came before me that, you know, uh, autoimmune issues would be better with gluten and uh man i'd perform better you know what i mean like if sufficient evidence came before either one of us or both of us to suggest that high intensity mixed modal functional fitness was genuinely improving things it'd be a high burn to me but i would hope that we would be willing to revise our beliefs it's just that that is not in point of fact what's happening and the people who are on the other side saying uh we're being dogmatic well ask you know they should internally ask themselves like what could come before you to change your beliefs? Cause I know what could come before me to change my beliefs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What could come before you? Yep. 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 Man, I'd be, uh, I'm open to that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm still searching the, the interwebs and around the world to uh, try to find the answer to that one. I'm certainly open to, you know, anyone that has a different uh, thought process on how that's going to occur with the definition inside of what, uh, you know, a really, uh, meaningful life means by all means. 
And that gets to another important point about the burden of proof. It's not your job to prove a negative. It's yeah. not your job to like, you know, yeah. say, well, I, you know, like Biden, it's not Biden's responsibility. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's the burden of the other side. So we, we can't say that these two positions are equally dogmatic. Mm-hmm. One is more reasonable and justified and the other is not. And until that burden is met, which it could be, it yeah. could be at some yeah. point. So like, that's really, I can't, if you take one thing away from this episode, please, as coaches are just people, uh, I, I can't stress this enough. It, it's, it's super pernicious. Just because two sides believe something confidently does not mean both sides are being equally dogmatic. The burden of proof matters. And in many cases, it is fairly easy to figure out where the burden of proof is. Not always, not always, but in a lot of cases. Yeah. But that, would you say that that takes a lot of like, you know, committee meetings and, or, and a lot of conversation in order to get to the, the agreement? Because what you and I say seems reasonable to you and I. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know, we, we have to admit that in any era, age and era, I mean, there are obviously going to be, if, if the if the standard for where the burden of proof lies consistent, everyone, everywhere agreeing, well, okay, no one's ever going to get to that. But like, just like I was mentioning last time with the chess match or the UFC game, like we agreed to certain rules of like, yeah. <laughs> evidence, like we've agreed to play this game. Yeah. Um, and I think if we are on that level, I think everyone has to, in, in a lot of these cases, there are sufficient reasons to think the burden of proof is on one side rather than the other. Yep. Sure. I watched Queen's Gambit, by the way. I really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Fan- fantastic. Yeah. Show. But yeah, just a, a perfect example of like, I mean, you, you could toss over the chessboard and yell at the other person, but like, yep. if you enter into this game, there's rules, there's rules and you have to make moves. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, great. Uh, and I picked up on all the stuff you were throwing down of the uh, the contribution of her her previous life and the connection of life's rules and all those things inside of the game itself. I really appreciated that. So I saw it from a different lens. I probably wouldn't have saw it from if you didn't mention that. So I thank you. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it was a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's talk about skepticism in, in fitness. So I've, I had- just, I've just been acting the role if you didn't recognize it, right? I've been skeptical <laughs> of my own views and skeptical of your reasons. Um, so I've been trying to play that here. And that's good. That's, that, that's like, you know, going back to the dogmatism discussion, that's like one of the signs, you know, that someone's not being dogmatic. Like, again, to take any one of these examples we just listed, like which side is the side being skeptical of their own stuff? Do you know what I mean? Like that, that makes a difference. When you see a side not be skeptical of its own claims, again, we're seeing this play out in ri- live time with, you know, the political realm at the moment, um, you know, that, that, that's important. That's an indication that something has gone awry. So it, it is important to be skeptical of what one believes, but, but appropriately so. Yep. Appropriately so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I had a, yeah, I had a few topics here. I didn't know if there were any that interested you more than others, but... Um, no, let's take uh, them one by one. But before we get there, uh, maybe the you mentioned it earlier, you know, with the... Where does the uh, just the robust amount of information that people have available to them today come into this area of uh, clarity or or some kind of certainty that doesn't like push more and more people incorrectly to the depths of skepticism because of how much information there is? Can you see that happening inside of fitness? Yes. You know, so. 
it's this is where, of course, this is why I, I talk about, you know, uh, coaches principles and coaches knowing themselves, right. Coming back to the principles of oneself first. So you got to see what you see, you know, know what you know, and then you can, you can work outwards, but any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an important and, and great question. And I think probably more so than in any other time in human history, it's, it's tough. I mean, even for people who are armed with the tools to, you know, to critically think about what you see, um, you know, imagine what it's like for people who aren't armed with the critical thinking tools to, you know, know how to adjudicate between different claims. You have, you know, one really popular person who's saying, you know, keto all the, all the way. And the other person saying, well, this doctor's saying carnivore mm-hmm. and, you know, this person's saying the other thing. And there's just such a glut of information that seems to be scientifically backed and well-researched. And of course, what that means and what works means is, is crucial there. But I, I think, yeah, your, your, your point is well taken. I think that does lead people into an unfortunate skepticism. You know, there's healthy skepticism and then there's an unfortunate skepticism where there's no truth and it doesn't matter what I do. And then, well, screw it. I'm not going to do anything. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, you're just thinking on the lines of the political situation too, right? Especially if you just take the context of, um, you know, voting fraud, um, you could honestly, if you searched hard enough and took a couple of days, you could probably see 10 to 12, because I have, um, really strong, like as you hear them in audio or presented, you know, how that information is presented, multiple versions of this thing, you know, multiple options and multiple ways. Like, so I was just trying to take the, the fitness user position, Robbie, right? I was trying to just say, my gosh, how do I, how do I, how do I not be a, you know, a really, uh, you know, uh, you know, negative, I guess it's not negative, but the depths of skepticism for all that comes towards me in terms of what I should do in fitness. Because I mean, if there's, I'm just using a parallel idea, right? If there's 10, just based upon voter fraud, maybe there's 25, you know, voices of what the truths are for fitness for that person who just wants to start, you know, moving and like feeling a little better about themselves, you know? So and to make it even more complicated, you know, I'm sure you run into this. We certainly have like, sadly and unfortunately, the ones who tend to do the best and have, you know, the best in the sense of like, you know, Instagram followers and YouTube views and all, all the rest of that stuff. It's the more confidently you assert, the less you are skeptical of your own view. So you have, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fitness consumer has 25 people, not just saying different perspectives with, you know, critical thinking behind it about, Oh, maybe I'm wrong, but like ramming it down their throat, like here's what you need to believe. And they're saying P and not P right. They're saying, you know, contradictory claims. So um, yeah, what they, which is ironic because it's dogma, (laughs) but but they, they position it perfectly. Right. It's like they start every advertising marketing with that same thing. Right. Like, have you gotten 24 different messages? They're all wrong. Here is certainty. You know, and then someone's like, ah, I don't want to think, you know, I don't want to critically think I, uh, that's the answer. They've used emotion and they've, uh, taken away logic and they're hit me right where it, where it needs to go, you know? Um, so I'm just trying to find that nice balance, you know, of speaking to a consumer now saying like, you know, a healthy dose of skepticism is nice, but, um, but I, I'm empathetic to your position that, 
you have just basically drowned yourself down now in being skeptic, you know, because there's just so many, so many options that seem to be the right, right way. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I do think where we can get some purchase here, although I don't, you know, it's not the perfect antidote is again, the evolutionary framework. It isn't the end all be all. It isn't the way, the light and the truth, but I think it, it you know, apply, same way it applies for fitness, it applies for nutrition. Mm. You could absolutely add cultural aspects on top or ethical or environmental or other things. But if we are having a biological discussion about what is best for the biological human organism, mm -hmm. there are objective facts about which things are better and worse. And like, mm -hmm. let's just use that as a launching point and say, yeah. okay, we weren't, we know there weren't seed oils back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I mean, we know there weren't Cheetos. Yeah. We know there was meat. Yeah. Um, and if we want to suggest that seed oils and Cheetos are healthier for us, perfectly possible, but that burden needs to be met. So that's just for the fitness consumer, the health consumer, that's just like a little like light in the darkness that can maybe mm -hmm. point you in the sense of like, Hey, what if we took this just framework yeah. as a starting point mm -hmm. and then the burden is on someone else to convince you otherwise. Yeah. 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 It's the same. I see the same thing and I'm glad you use nutrition because I see that happen and it's very parallel to the fitness physical expression paradigm, right? Um, that, uh, seed oil and Cheetos would be a postmodern way of thinking that calories are still the answer in the energy equation. Right. And that's why it doesn't matter if it's meat or seed oil or Cheetos because the calories just matter. So they are saying P and P to use your point at the same time. Right. Um, and they do it really sneakily in my opinion to kind of just front this whole evidence based upon calories and the energy equation. And that's all that matters in the end. Um, and if I, I would say a group that does it better than fitness, the physical expression group, it's the scientific nutritional evidence group. I mean, they just, my gosh, it's really heavily and strong. So I just wanted to make mention of that, that I heard it indirectly from you there. Um, if we just want to use it as an example of skepticism around that, um, because if you're, if you're just a consumer looking at that, you're like, gosh, I mean, it makes so much sense. It's just the calories, you know? And so your seed oil, Doritos argument just falls, right? It does. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's where the framework comes in. That's where the goals come in. Um, and the burden. And the burden. Absolutely. Well, the understanding that's of the burden, right? As a consumer, I mean, that's way down the line, but as a fitness coach, that's where we need to have the conversation is like the burden is on them, you know, to, to come up with some, uh, some definitions around, well, what is that timeline? What do we mean? What are we defining with the context, et cetera? Yeah. And just like we were talking about with, with CrossFit, where we say, oh, well, you know, someone could try to make the burden not quite as strong for them instead of saying it's sufficient for health, it's necessary. In the nutrition realm, they could do something similar. And I don't think you and I would necessarily disagree. They could say, okay, well, we're not talking about health and longevity. Great. Good. Because you'd lose that argument. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're talking about short-term weight loss yeah. or weight yeah. gain in the sense of muscle building or mass gain yeah. or short-term athletic performance that can hinder your long-term health and longevity. Cool. We're not in disagreement, yeah. but yeah. the broader claim about health and longevity and you're not using some sort of evolutionary biological framework with biological mm -hmm. beings. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it always got to that one, Robbie. It doesn't get there though. It gets drowned down in, uh, in metabolic ward, 12 week conversations and just can't get past it. it. It's like, if we were talking about like, what's best to feed a dog or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, of course, humans aren't just biological beings. I'm not saying again, that you can't 
add cultural considerations or religious, you know, or eth ethical or economical or, you know, environmental, those are all of a piece, but at base, everyone has to grant we are biological beings and the fundamental unifying theory of biology is evolution. So yeah. like, we have to just like start there. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. And if we define evolution and we work into this, like, you know, optimal lived, lived experience, that's what comes underneath this biological framework, right? We're defining that as a optimal lived experience. And then to scrape out what optimal means, that's the, you know, oof, that's the burden on us. I would say like, you need to define optimal because I could show you a shit ton of studies on medicine up to 85 people are just upright. You know, it's like, well, you got me there. You know, you got me there. Yeah. Well, again, I think the burden would be on them. Like, if, if we have now so watered down optimal to mean just upright, then yeah. I listen, dude, I, <laughs> I agree with you, but <laughs> oh my gosh, it's not the case. That's not where, uh, man, there's industries and systems that are so deep uh, that it would blow all of our minds on how entrenched they are in, uh, in that, where uh, there's, no, there's no coming back from that one. It's not going to turn around. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I totally grant what you're saying. I mean, look, there, there are going to be people who are going to kind of dig in their feet here, but I, I do think there are reasonable people that either in the CrossFit realm or in the nutrition realm that we could meet at the table and they could probably have points back, you know I mean? Oh, someone's sufficiently. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Of course. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, they don't have a lot of points, but they, they could, you know, I've yeah. heard all the points. No, I'll be honest. I've heard all the points. No one's nothing's it's all packaged differently now. It's like, you know, um, I'm almost like, uh, sound like a dick here. I'm almost like, uh, um, will, uh, will in goodwill hunting where, where they, they did this start. I'm like, I bet you're going to quote Glassman CrossFit journal number three right now. Right. And they're like, eh, 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 eh. And it was like, and I bet you're going to talk about scaling for dose response and degree, eh, 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 you know, people just get stuck in, in the words now. Um, so I'm still waiting for that, but I'm open to it. Yeah. Hey, I'm open to it. Right. Meet, you know, meet us on the field to discuss in, in these particular terms. And if there's sufficient evidence, great. Yes. You know, but, but if we're not even met on the field and it's just, well, this is the cool thing that we like and it brings in a ton of money and members. Well, then that, oh, that, that's a different thing. We're just, we're not having the same conversation. Anymore. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So defining success. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, I went on the, before you were saying, you know, how do we want to cover some of these questions? I wanted to ask you about the information overload and you, we, uh, you, uh, that sufficed for me. So how about some, uh, initial questions, um, sure. on what's inside of fitness for skepticism. So I thought one that would be interesting, not even initially knowing that question that you brought up at the beginning about like how skepticism can be useful evolutionary and evolutionarily in terms of moving us forward. I had this question here that I was curious, your thoughts, you know, what role does skepticism play in helping the fitness collective move um, forward or backward? So, you know, we have the famous example of, you know, uh, what is fitness? That, that was a skeptical approach in, in one regard to bodybuilding and aerobic. But then, you know, the counterpoint of, well, maybe that wasn't, you know, maybe that kind of got calcified. I mean, you have skepticism with regard to that. that so thoughts there. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, is, the you know, whoever... Well, first of all, it's tough to define who's inside of fitness, but let's just say the people that are inside of fitness, um, 
we certainly have to uh, look real hard in terms of uh, what we're defining as impact for healthier humans. I think we need to do a uh, we need to do a really uh, good job of being skeptical of the previous notion for this project of you know the 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 uh, Bally's fitness concept because that's still you know this is what we're doing I mean, this is what fitness is now it's moved past recreation and leisure into like folly and then a diversion tactic of of living um and i think we the fitness collective that's what i'm calling the fitness collective we coaches people inside of it who have some kind of skin in the game on it we need to be skeptical of everything that's happened up to this point in time and how it has defined our definition of making people healthier and living longer, more prosperous uh, lives, being more resilient individuals. And I think on the whole, there's a monster majority of all of that was just simply horrible prescriptions. So I think we need to be skeptical uh, in the collective uh, um, of, of, that context, Robbie, of everything in the past up to this point in time and what our like principles and rules and like in, engagement is inside of that, because I don't think we've done a, done a good job. And I think that it's, uh, it's very easy with how information is shared today uh, to seemingly think like we're making impact, right? But it's, uh, it's not really moving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think it can definitely be a help, helpful corrective, especially today. I mean, I think both both in the fitness realm and the nutrition realm, just you know, having the health, historical perspective, which you're, you know, uh, very fond of bringing up, and I think rightly so. You know, the past hundred years of both fitness and nutrition are fundamentally unlike anything in, in human history. So just taking that, you know, just even viewing that fact, just like mm -hmm. let that fact like marinate for a second, and then say mm -hmm. like why is that the case? How did that come to be? And then what do we do with that? Like a somewhat equivalent that you could maybe see in nutrition is like, you know, people cooked with animal fats and then, Oh, well, you know, the seed oil guys come along and they have skepticism with regard to animal fats and those aren't healthy and dirty. We're going to get those out of here. And then hundred years of that. And then like, Oh shit, <laughs> you know, we thought this was better, but like using skepticism now to be like, Oh no, they had it right. So like um, skepticism can definitely be used in, in both towards not good ends and in good ends, but just reflecting on that fact that like, wow, this is just so fundamentally different from anything that came before. Yeah. Um, is there, sometimes that can be a good thing. Humans have made progress in, in certain realms and th th that, that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but just because things are different in the past hundred years doesn't always mean that they're better. Oh yeah. The trap that we always fall in. That a lot oh, of geez. Fall into. oh geez. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It gets into, just modernity conversation technology and I mean just since 2000 I mean it's like a whole new concept of thought I agree with you there another one I would say uh, Robbie is um, uh, children's physical education I think uh, man uh, as part of the fitness collective we need to be really really skeptical uh, as to what we are embedding in culture now um, uh, from little ones that have, you know, don't have the faculties to understand uh, movement and movement experience, you know, and it's, uh, it's being an exemplar now through broken homes and, uh, and, uh, and, and broken families and, uh, 
um, broken accessibility to it just being a part of daily life. And now it's not inside as majority of the public school system. Um, it's, uh, it's second, it's second rate in regards to what's being taught inside of a private systems even or charter systems. And I've done my research on that and it's not, there's very select few who are like, oh yes, we honor body and movement every day and we don't need to test it, but we know it's a base support for kids to learn STEM more effectively. Um, I think that, that we got to be really skeptical of that movement where that's going right now. Yeah. And you know, you know, just in virtue of having kids and being in the space with Brand X, you know, way more than I do, but just, just from my own perceived sense of it, it, it seems to me as though, you know, um, today physical fitness for kids is viewed as kind of like the thing you do to let, let out some steam after learning math or like something that will give you a little bit, uh, more edge, like you said, in, in STEM or it's, it's an afterthought. Let's put it that way. It's, it's kind of the, it's a little cherry on top on, you know, it's, and it's maybe, I don't know what the ratio would be, but if we're talking intellectual pursuits, that's like, you know, six to one or something like that compared to physical fitness. Oh yeah. Um, I, th I think, uh, um, I think it's, you know, I, I, I would wish that it's actually those things cause I could wrap some good morality around burning off steam and allowing more cognitive behaviors to appear. Right. But no, it's not the case, Robbie. Unfortunately, it's a fear that their kids are going to get fat um, or it's to keep kids off of screens or it's, uh, yeah, we don't want to have an overfat child or it's what it's what you it's what these kids need to have to balance out the consumption of all this low nutrient dense foods. That's the that's the real deepest truth of of the people that are making the decisions on why kids should move. Right. And then there's other, I call it the marginal stuff that we seemingly think is a big thing, right? Uh, over parenting, parenting, over scheduling parents wanting their kid to become an NCAA soccer player. Like that's, that's marginal shit. That doesn't happen as much as all the other stuff. I think that are the deepest intentions is really just to keep kids from getting fat and keep them off screens, which as you know, is going to be futile. The, if those are the intentions of uh, asking all these, all this new generation to move, you know, where even the teacher who uh, I gave you the example on a call, I think way back, it wasn't this one, it was an OPEX call. Who, Hannah comes home and I just decide to ask what the gym teacher was doing during class, right? He's like, he was just sitting over in the corner, <laughs> just sitting down. I was like, oh my gosh, right? So, I mean, top down, that is an exemplar, right? That's your... That's your Jack Lane. That's her Jack Lane today. That's the opportunity for an exemplar, right? Of an adult and an appreciation for physical experience and et cetera. I'm sorry I'm on a tangent, but I think that's, that's where we got to be skeptical is that movement that's pretty crappy right now around the, uh, um, the well-observed uh, benefits of uh, physical expression for younger kids and how that's going to, how that's going to come about. No, I think those are good points. And that's super, I, the, the, the reasons that you mentioned that you, you know, you see as most prevalent in kids, physical, physical education, that's interesting. And I think that does lead to a context where skepticism can be useful. I think we talked about this on one episode where you could just say something like, look, okay, well, what if tomorrow kids cease to be, you know, all kids cease to be fat mm -hmm. and we're the weight that they should be. And there are no more screens, just hypothetically speaking, just do the yeah. thought example. 
Yeah. Uh, does, does physical expression become useless? And of course, the answer is no. Um, so just, just doing that kind of thought experiment around the current reasons and that skepticism, I, I think, can be useful. Yeah. Um, I also have another area. I think that the collective needs to be um, self it needs to continue to self-evaluate. So we need to be skeptical as to what coach value and what a coach is today. Um, a future knowledge series I'm doing, the next one is on uh, coach value being equaling. It's, it's the coach minus the internet. Um, just to get people thinking in terms of like, well, how do I provide value as a coach and what does that really mean? And how do I like drum that up, you know? Um, and I'm going back to a purist concept of in-person, local community, local tribe communication. And that's how you really build it, right? not showing your ass on Instagram and thinking you got all these followers, but really are you coaching anyone? Are you teaching anything, et cetera? So I think the collective needs to be skeptical of that, the future value of the fitness coach, um, which is a whole host of things that are argumentative on regulation and uh, what it means and what the language and why we virtue signal pro, you know, fit pro when really we're just trades people um, in the end, or I guess professional trades people, you know? Um, so I think that's what we need to be skeptical of as well. Robbie. Yeah. That, and then the one that we've mentioned a few times now, the, um, the point you've made about, you know, long-term is, is the ideal to even is for there to even be a fitness coach. So just, yeah. just yeah. even, whether one comes to the conclusion yes or no on that question, just even entertaining or being skeptical with regard to yeah. why are we necessary and what does that teach us yes. in that question? Yes. No. Uh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. I continually want to keep that, uh, keep coaches abreast of that one and being be, be skeptical of, uh, I guess, putting in another language, Robbie, your own profession, your reason, your meaning, and also, uh, you know, think about the, you'd think about the big hard questions in that, like, you know, is it, is it just, are you just part of something to keep things moving or are you really making impact? And if you are, if you still dig in on that, um, you'll see that you've been skeptical the whole time, which is good. It's a positive skepticism, I would say, um, on what that is. And that'll, that'll, you know, hopefully over time, you know, uh, round you out to make you realize that, yeah, you want to push towards that, you know, teaching people to, to obtain skills, they can operate this thing alone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we talked a bit about the collective. Um, let's talk about the coach and then the client. So what, um, I mean, this is maybe too broad a question, so I should narrow it down, but like what role should skepticism play in being a fitness coach? And we can index this to, scientific findings and how they apply to clients, his or her own biases, his or her own experiences, what the client tells them, like thought, thoughts there. Gosh, I think I just summarized them, I guess, maybe, you know, higher up a more of a larger view because I was including coaches in those previous ones and the list is more, but you know, um, one I'll just start with and maybe it'll bleed into others for the fitness coach. You certainly have to be skeptical of where you're getting your information that says it's objective truth. So this is the plan and program design. Like this is what you should be designing for people. Um, I think coaches need to be really skeptical of that because uh, in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, a more strenuous idea, I guess, is the, 
is the previous thought, which was probably early aughts until, you know, well, actually, no, it was the 90s until early aughts where uh, the coach thought they need to learn all this education and get all this stuff just stuffed inside. Um, and then they get in real world fitness and see that like it's parallel to a six year Harvard degree and you're not even using it for the rest of your life. Right. It's like all that work for using these little itty, itty bitsy human things, you know, of like, uh, uh, do a reverse lunge, Nancy, and don't forget to chew your broccoli 32 times. So, um, I think coaches should be skeptical of, of, uh, when that, when that individual, including myself, would stand up in that position of authority and say, these are the truths, right? This, this is what you need to know. And, uh, and, and, and these are the things that, you know, are, are the truths in fitness, you know? So I would say that coaches need to be really skeptical of the current, let's call it the educational system for fitness coaching. Okay. There were a couple others that I was kind of I was kind of curious about that maybe skepticism is the right term. Maybe it's not, but one scenario you could, you could think of is, you know, a coach just meets a client or has the first initial consultation. And obviously this depends on the context and the person, but the extent to which a coach should be skeptical with regard to what the client is telling them. And, and again, maybe skeptical isn't the right term here, but. Oh, yeah. I thought that earlier. Okay. Something yeah. akin to like the notion of like detached caring. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that earlier, uh, and I'm not, you know, completely uh, up to speed on your exact question, because I apologize, I cut you off there, because I was thinking, yeah, no, you talked about it earlier in the consultation aspect, and I was like, hmm, I guess the, so, and I'm not sure if I'm going to answer it, but I'll say this, is that I generally apply in my teaching, um, in my teaching of coaches, I ask coaches to always go back to self first, and say, like, you know, what are my experiences in life? What are my experiences and beliefs in fitness? What have I, what have I learned in this fitness experience? Because that all develops this base support of understanding as to, you know, what you do with any of that that comes back and forth with the client, right? To your point of like, you know, should, the, should we have some skepticism on behalf of the coach for, for what the client presents with, right? Um, but when you enter into that relationship, um, what I generally say is that you have to, whether you like it or not, you have to enter in with there's, uh, there's good on the other side that you have to try to raise up and expose. Like I, I say, you got to come into every consult, whether you like it or not, with saying to yourself, there's a lot of good in that human. There's a lot of positivity. There's a lot of reasons as to why they want to do this thing. They've stepped into this relationship with me and we go from there. So, and so I guess in the language, you know, you're, you're pretty much uh, not skeptical whatsoever from the get go. I, I believe it, 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 it kind of, it more or less has to be that way. Then when it comes inside the technical technical things on what they answer to the questions you're asking, your experience dictates how skeptical you could be. So I guess to make it short, I would say if your experience is low as a coach, you have no right to be more skeptical because you don't have anything to go on to kind of observe like, Oh, I've had these 25 different experiences of, 
this person saying, oh, this is how I, this is why I drink a glass of wine at night. Do you know what I'm saying? And you can't with that one first client go, uh, I'm skeptical of your tracking of uh, that wine. It's like, what basis do you have to work with on that? Right. What book did you learn that from? You know, um, because as an example, that glass of wine may, to use a great analogy, if tipped over, that may tip over a whole lot of things that you shouldn't have touched first, you know? So um, I would say that as your experience grows, Robbie, skepticism can now move inside of the consultation process. Um, and it's probably, yeah, to use your words, I would agree. It's probably not skepticism. It's, um, it's a deeper investigation of uh, priorities that you're trying to find in the person. You know, and if that sounds like skepticism, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so I guess the rules that I would just say, right from the get-go, you got to believe in the fact that there's good on the other side. Therefore, there's zero in skepticism. And as you start with people, when your experience is low, you don't have the right to be skeptical because you don't have experiences that are going to lend into you having this broad array. And then as experiences grow, your skepticism can grow, which is allowable, in my opinion, because you're able to offer multiple different scenarios um, of, uh, of uh, you know, the questioning of the tracking or the questioning of, of uh, truths on, on their behalf of what they're answering, you know, things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I appreciate the distinction between, you know, and, that, and that's the, the second part, the technical part was kind of what I had in mind, but I appreciate that distinction between like always approaching it as, as if there's, you know, good on the other side. We're not skeptical of the person as like a human or, you know, we, we try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and then, you know, as you get more experience being able to um, just have some more critical thoughts about some of the things that they're saying. And the other thing to clarify there is I, I didn't ever mean it uh, in the sense of like, you know, some person comes in and says, uh, oh, I'm vegan. I, that's wrong. No, no, no. Yeah. More like no, uh, they, that way. they more like they come in and they say, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've been I've been a cop for the past ten years, but I get you know pretty good sleep. You know, you know, what I mean, just and not that you would even like challenge that uh, verbally, but just kind of in the back of your mind, like mm, mm -hmm. okay, the wheels are turning. Yep. Um, and going back to that notion of, uh, I guess, detached caring. I don't know what the equivalent term would be here, but like seeing the person as a good person wanting to help them, but also realizing that they're what they are presenting to you comes with a bit of um, like all information from any person, like comes with a bit of bias and background that might need to be, you know, just accounted for at some point during the coaching. Yes. Process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You raise a couple of, you know, you raise a good question there that I'm going to spend more time thinking on because it creates a new angle for that idea of like, well, how much, how much questioning should I really have as a new coach with one client? You know, you're a new coach, your first client, you know, you know, you really have to have a really open book. Like you have nothing to go on, on your experiences that lend into you, you know, questioning anything, you know, um, you know I'm saying like, you can't read a book that's like, Oh, if they say this, it means that like an adventure playbook, you know, it's like, Someone says, oh, I just skip over lunch. It's like, bing, you know. <laughs> it's nothing. It doesn't tell you anything in the story, right? Just one thing I'm thinking as you're saying that, I do think one potentially practical neutral way, a, a, even a new coach 
could go about it, but you tell me if you think I'm wrong would be kind of the motivational interviewing style where the purse, the purpose isn't necessarily to then contradict them or do anything, but just say, Oh, you skipped lunch. Uh, yeah. Hey, tell me about why, you know, and then the, the deeper why is and that it's purely yeah. neutral. It's purely oh, just, sure. yeah. Yeah. If it's coming from a place of neutrality, just for conversation to kind of, you know, layer it that, you know, yeah, for sure. For sure. But if there's deeper intentions underneath that questioning that looks neutral, but it's like, eh, you know, I'm skeptical that always, it always comes out as a possibly, you may guess right, but it possibly could go awry. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think practically what's, what's nice about that method is very often without you having to say anything, just like the deeper layers, they're like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now I, I came to that realization on my own. Yeah. Um, all right, good, good. That's, that's super helpful. Um, one, another one I was curious about with regard to the coach, you know, we, we've said multiple times that, you know, experience is really the, the key, whether we're talking about the fitness client or the fitness coach. And of course this is contextual and relative to the person, but you know, to what extent should the coach question his or her experiences working with, you know, a, a finite number of people. We all will only work with a finite number of people. Mm -hmm. I've primarily been, you know, in the powerlifting realm and some people have been in the cross. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're helpful and they're useful and they're pieces of the uh, elephant, so to speak um, that, you, you know, you have some piece of reality that you're touched into and maybe skepticism is the right word, but just maybe critically thinking about your own experience and like how far does it reach and, um, you know, what can it be applicable to? Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I, I take that into a lane of, uh, uh, confirmation bias, I think. And, yeah. uh, um, but I think, you know, again, I get, like a lot of the language we said, I think when we enter into fitness, we're not even sure if skepticism is a language, but I like using it as a placeholder for it because, um, I think it just keeps coaches honest in what they know and what they don't know. So I would say that, uh, yeah, you do have to recognize that every, every experience that you have, um, you know, it just builds on itself with every client, right? And then you'll find over time, um, even if it, there's a broad array of clients and there's 30 of them, um, it still is an avatar in your little ecosystem. Like that's your, that's your group and how you blend and how you communicate. So it's just important that we recognize to be skeptical, skeptical of the principles that you think to be true over time are still only coming from your experiences inside your ecosystem. And the only way for you to know and find answers to see if those principles are true is you get into things like CCP or what we see arise at immersion where everyone comes together and we're all like, yeah, yeah, I saw that too. I saw that too. So that's, it's at only at that point where I would say you, can drop the skepticism a little bit, right? Because you look around and you're like, you too? Yeah, 15 years, like I've been doing this thing and it's all like working out and, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's where I stand, right? I stand amongst all those coaches and be like, listen, you know, you haven't experienced this yet, but 15 years down the road, you're all gonna come together to the group. You're all gonna say, yeah, strength work and aerobic work, you know, good stuff. Um, and so, but I think up until that point, to your point, which is, which is good, be skeptical of what you think you know and understand confirmation bias around your little environment, right? And what, who you're working with and whatnot. But, but uh, consistency yields results. So if, you, if that stays, you know, the, whatever system you're in and whatever way you think you're doing it, 
you know, if that gets older and older and longer and longer, and there's some form of consistency and rhythm stuck inside of that in relationships, I can guarantee you pretty much that you can drop the skepticism over time and, and say, yes, these principles inside can blend outside of my environment to create success in other environments. Yeah. So, but you can't within your first year, um, think that just because you're making some headway with your tribe, that those are principles that speak truths, you know, over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great way of putting it. I think this is where getting a clear notion of like which skepticism we're referring to matters because there's kind of like disbelieving everything. There's this holding judgment. And I think really the, the form we're talking about right now is using skepticism as a tool to always, um, I don't even know if this is relevant anymore with new tech, but defrag the hard drive, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. um, there's stuff that's kind of getting calcified and you got to kind of go in and be like, eh, should this be there? And should it not, yeah. um, you know, not to purposely doubt anything and everything that's said within the fitness realm or everything that you learn, but rather just to say like, Oh, let's give that one another test. Yes. Let's see like how, how's that one holding up? Mm -hmm. Should I still which, believe that? Which is skepticism. You're skeptical of the, the right path. Right? right, which is good. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. So yeah. Um, okay, yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, we've talked about the client a little bit already, but uh, I guess a, maybe a little bit more discussion here about the. Well, let me pause for a second. How are you doing on time? You doing okay? Yeah, I'm you pretty good. Okay? I'm gonna have to okay. pee soon, but uh, okay. I think we'll we we'll get to talk some client. Um. So we talked about how the client can fall into a really pernicious form of skepticism mm -hmm. today where they're just, they're, um, they don't know what to believe. Yeah. They don't know where to go. Um, but what, you know, what should we ask the client to do or what, what role can skepticism help play in the fitness client? maybe finding a coach or finding a gym or maybe even not finding a coach or a gym at all. Yeah. And um, you know, what role do you think uh, skepticism can play there and maybe a, a beneficial way for the client? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that in the face of a whole bunch of information, we don't necessarily turn our back and go nihilist to doing nothing. That's what I would say to the, to the clients, right? It's like, just because there's a lot out there, you don't go, you know what? It's so confusing. I'm not even going to make an attempt, right? Nope. What I would say is you actually use your continued skepticism of everything that you come in front of. So I guess this would be the, maybe ironically, we finish our call with who should be the most skeptical inside of fitness. It should be the client, right? And they should be, right? They should be skeptical of everything that comes in front of them that says, this is the path. This is what you should do. So I will say this to clients, the ridiculously skeptical with kindness with great questioning but here's your base support of what you need to get from the answers to all your skeptical questions tell me why i'm doing this what is the long-term pathway for this in both our relationship and my level of resilience over time so as a client you have every right to ask this if you want to get more technical Every training session or movement experience should have a reason that should be connected to your previous two questions, right? Like what's the long-term goals here? And what does that pathway look like? What's my runway, you know, and what do you have in mind for us for our relationship? So if you're a client 
um, or you're a coach listening in who could tell a client or you're going to write about this or you're actually a client just listening in, you should ask those questions to the purveyors of, of education on physical expression and nutrition and behaviors inside of fitness. Yeah. And the ones who are doing what they're supposed to be doing should have a good answer to that. Dude, that's easy for me. I love actually, I ironically loved having those individuals fall in front of me. I do remember those as my, you know, it's hard, I should never say this, but some of my more favorite clients were the ones that showed up as true skeptics of those bigger questions. Cause I had, I had such clarity, such clarity that they would leave in 90 minutes and like sign of like, they didn't do it, but they'd sign like a 10 year contract. We're just like, I'm in like the pathway is set. They answered all the questions. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm doing what I should be doing. So, uh, uh, you should, and that's, that may be a good, uh, a good, uh, you know, insight there. If you're a coach, Robbie, that if, if you're a little hesitant on answering those questions or you have uh, uncertainty in terms of what that should look like, that's okay. That's a good thing, but that should strengthen, you know, strengthen your resolve to find answers to those, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing I thought of, as you were saying that is I think you and I would both agree that obviously in the ideal scenario that the, it wouldn't necessarily fall on the client to have to be so skeptical, but that is the nature of the way it is today. And yes. an analogy I thought of from nutrition is I'll routinely say to people and lots of other nutrition coaches say the same thing, you know, uh, a packaged food at the grocery store is, uh, you know, the, in the center aisles is guilty until proven innocent. So, it, so the reason I'm bringing that up is that. Great example. Sadly, this this burden has fallen on the client, given the nature of where we're at today. And you know, mm -hmm. fitness client, we wish this didn't fall on you, but given the nature of where we are today, um, you know, it, it is important for you to ask these these questions of of your coach and any other fitness establishment, and have them provide you with reasons as to why you should be doing what they're uh, propounding. Yep, yep. In behaviors, exercise, and nutrition. That's, that's the key technical components that you got to be having answers to. So if you as a client come in and you're skeptical of like their, you know, consultation, consultation questions, good on you. Um, if like, you know, they're saying like, go to the aisles, you know, okay, give me some, give me some reason for that. Right. Uh, why do we need to do, uh, what you're calling German body composition training? <laughs> it's like, that's a good question. You no, know, why the Germans? <laughs> All right. Um, you know, ask those questions, right? Yeah, I agree. And good luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's speed out there today, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I think that was a pretty, uh, pretty good one. Any, any final thoughts there? No, no. I, uh, I indirectly observed myself, uh, being a skeptic for most of it, which is kind of good. Like you said, um, and um, I learned something there in, in times, a couple things that I've noted and I stuck back there in one of the boxes um, to revisit in a different way, thanks to your language on it. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, there were a number of great points today on the, uh, particularly the, the coaching, the way you framed that. I, I really appreciated that. I, I think two practical things, you know, that we mentioned that might be helpful for coaches to take away is again, just because two sides are confidently saying something don't, doesn't mean that they're being equally dogmatic. Remember that and try to think where does the burden of proof lie? And then 
on the whole, again, in that, in that balance between dogmatism and skepticism, it may be more beneficial just, and just because of the nature of humans, because we have finite minds and because we're more prone to believe things that we shouldn't, to be a little bit more on the school side as the virtue. That is um, the, the proper way to be just to, you know, defrag the hard drive, so to speak, and try to, you know, weed out the things that are calcified in there that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Yep. No one knows what hard drive is anymore. It's all SSDs. Now. Oh, dude, it'll, you know, someone will get it and that's all that matters. We're going down swing yeah. with that one. So I'm, I'm back and then I'm not even providing a more millennial uh, analogy to that. <laughs> cool. Okay. All right. Thanks a Thank lot.